0: Hello and welcome to Selling Sheet Music, a podcast for composers, arrangers, and songwriters to learn more about publishing and marketing their sheet music. I'm your host, Garrett Breeze. Thanks for listening. This podcast is brought to you by HolidayChoirMusic.com. Give your choir the gift of new music this holiday season by commissioning a new work or choosing from our exciting collection of music for Christmas, Easter, Hanukkah, and other holidays. Use the code PODCAST at checkout to get 50% off your first order. My guest today is pianist and fellow Nashville composer Philip Kevron. He is the co-author of Hal Leonard's Student Piano Library Method, as well as hundreds of published arrangements for solo piano. He has written extensively for the church music market, including arrangements for major Christian artists, such as Steve Green, Travis Cottrell, Larnell Harris, Sandy Patty, Mandiza, Jeremy Camp, and the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir. We had a great conversation about piano, Spotify, how to write educational music, and the many ways the industry has changed over the last 50 years. And at the end of the episode, I share recordings of two of his recent works. Philip Kevron, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you, Garrett. Thanks for having me. So to kick things off, I knew of you first as a church musician, and then afterwards, I sort of discovered all the piano methods and the arrangements and everything else. And so I'm wondering how much do you think uh for marketing purposes or even musical purposes like how is imp- how important is it to put yourself in a box as a composer to be known as I'm a church musician or I'm an arranger or I do educational music how much do you think that distinction matters
1: It seems like the more you try to control that the less you can control it I have just always kind of worked in whatever came along and those streams opened up and then people put you in the boxes. <laughs> um, it, it, it's always been a kind of a strange thing to try to understand because I'll, I'll get, some people will come at me from the secular world and be surprised to see the sacred side of things and vice versa and um, I don't know. It seems like people were, will create a box for you and put you in there, and I'm happy to write in whichever box I end up in. <laughs> I mean, I think it's useful to a
0: certain extent. Like, you know who to market to if if a lot of your music is for a specific thing. But sometimes I'll find myself, you know, with an idea for a cool arrangement, and I'll kind of second guess whether or not I should even do it, you know? It's like, well, people, people know me as a show choir guy, so should I also try and arrange something a cappella, or are they just going to blow it off? Because that's not what they expect from me,
1: you know? Yeah. Yeah. I've I, i I've never, I understand what you're saying. I, I've just kind of gone and thrown things against the wall and let them fall with. And what's really interesting is that, like I, I did an arrangement years and years ago of Still, 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 the Christmas carol for choir, but it ended up in the educational market. And the educational market, completely separate, as you well know, from the from the sacred choral market. And all of a sudden, I was getting all this, you know, these notes and things from, from school teachers. I'm going, what? I mean, I didn't really realize that that's where it was going. And uh, so, you know, there are these elisions. And then there are also these walls. Um, I guess Christmas music kind of jumps over the wall, doesn't it? It seems like it kind of exists in multiple paradigms but
0: do you think those walls are changing now that self-publishing is
1: growing so much i think it is absolutely yeah that that's really true because people go to a site for a composer someone with whom they have a relationship from whatever direction and then they kind of find the things that are part of their world yeah
0: so what has your experience been with publishing? Because I know you've done it both ways. You have hundreds and hundreds of things with Hal Leonard, but you've also published on your own. And I'm sure there's other publishers you worked with as well.
1: Well, when I started, there really wasn't a self-publishing road that I could see. You know, it was kind of you went out and, and looked for publishers for the things you were going to do. And as time has gone by, you know, that has become an option here in the last season of my career and i'm having fun exploring that direction um traditional publishing has been good to me but it's also you know its perils are that the publisher puts you in a box and says this is what we want from you and when you stray a little bit one way or the other they're reining you in for what, you know, how they want to market you. So it's fun in the self-publishing direction to just kind of write for things that you see as chances to explore different things and, and find out where it might go, you know? Yeah. What are
0: the things that I've worked the best for you with marketing your music?
1: Well, I have so little experience marketing my own from, from you know, from my own website, I'm I'm truly learning that as we speak. Uh, I know that from the traditional publishing side, the thing that really always seemed to be at the center of a piece or, or a certain direction working was some key person or institution that used or recorded or you know. And then that, and then it grew from that. Um, was that know,
0: typically somebody who commissioned a work or was that just uh, luck, I suppose?
1: It, I think there's, yeah, I think luck, yes. And also um, I did, I'll tell you what I did do earlier in my career is when, even in the in the traditional publishing route, when I would finish something that I thought had merit for someone, I would send things to people Uh, I had a connection for, instance, you know, Brooke Mays piano in Dallas, which was a force in its day. And I would send it to their person that stocked that store and say, what do you think? You know, is this something get, I, I kind of learned that it was smart to get to know the key people in those big print stores. Uh, That's an era gone by. You know, that just doesn't really exist at this point. But it sure was true 25, 30, 40, well, not 40, 30 years ago. Those were really important people to get to know and send stuff to. So who would you say are the
0: equivalent people now, now that
1: everything's digital? Oh, boy. Um, You know, there are all these bloggers and podcasters. You ever heard of these podcasts for people? <laughs> <laughs> I I I think that's that's kind of where it is now. I mean, I recently did an interview with someone who, out of nowhere, says, "Hey, I found your your jazz book for it's what is it called Bach? It's awful that I can't remember it. They they are box pieces that I arranged for jazz piano, and this person found the book." I did an interview with this podcaster, and then next thing I know, I'm getting a call from someone who is playing this in a club in Minneapolis, and they discovered this book from this podcast, and then they're playing from this book in a club atmosphere where there are people that play piano, and then it grows out of that, and you realize, oh, okay, those sorts of things are important to do, as in podcasts.
0: Well, thank you for the flattery. (laughs) I I do think though, um, well, okay, the the stores are gone, but there's so much more competition now that I think there still has to be, how do I want to put this? There are still going to be key players in distribution and marketing and, and just helping people filter through all this stuff. I mean, that's the challenge now, right? Is if you are a self-publishing piano arranger, you know, how many thousands of piano arrangements are you competing against
1: and how do you figure out how to get the word out? Yeah, and it's interesting. You know, I I put an ad in Piano Magazine in uh, their spring issue, a magazine that has reviewed my piano works for many, many years. And I just put an ad in there and said, hey, guess what? I'm going to be doing stuff on my own website as well, thinking, does anyone even look at advertisements in this magazine? I don't know. And the jury's still out on that, whether that was worth, because it wasn't cheap to do. But I thought, well, you know, give it a run and see whether it is worth uh, you know, the old thing of where do you advertise how much
0: <laughs> well I guess know. what I'm I guess what I'm really asking is is what what do you think has changed and what do you think hasn't changed? Because so much of it has gone digital, but a lot of the key players are still the same, and a lot of the ways people, at least, perform the
1: music are still the same. So surely are, there's yeah. some similarities. There are, it, it, you know, tastemakers and influencers. They're just not at, at a, a dealership or a, a, a print store. They're, you know, now a podcaster or a, you know, at a university setting or, but it, it is. Really, talk about, I, early in the internet net days, I remember guys guy saying to me, you don't want to be a hot dog stand in the desert. And I always thought that was a great, uh, yes, you can build a hot dog stand in the desert, but does anybody know that there? you're there, you know, and um, with my own website. I didn't want to be a hot dog stand in, in the desert, you know. I have the the advantage of, of a network of people that know my work through traditional publishing. So, I, I, you know, it gives me a little leg up with marketing from that spot. But, yeah, I mean, this, this very same discussion can be had exactly for the recording industry. Uh, it's, you know, you've got Spotify and 10 gazillion people putting their stuff up there. And, okay, do you need a label to be marketing your music, or can you do it yourself? But if you do it yourself, then how do you get the attention of the people putting together playlists? And, you know, is it worth paying somebody $1,500 that's a supposed playlist promoter? Is it worth it? You know, I... I don't know. I, I Well, let's go there, because
0: one of the things I wanted to talk to you about is how much you have recorded your music and put albums of your music out on streamers. And I counted before we got on here, I counted 50 albums on Spotify. Um, and I think that's one of the things that composers really struggle with is getting recordings of their music. And obviously, when you play piano yourself, it's it's somewhat easier to record piano albums, but but they're not all just piano albums. I mean, you've got orchestrations on there, you've got full orchestra, you've got instrumental things, you know, yeah. so I guess talk me through your strategy in that and how it all came to be and and what do you think has worked and, and hasn't worked?
1: Well, uh, the vast majority of those recordings are things that were done in the CD era and have then migrated into streaming. Uh however, over the last five or six years, I've done a lot of things uh for Burton Avenue Music and Green Hill and and those folks that are that have really, you know, are doing well with the streaming uh paradigm. And I also went and recaptured some things that were recorded years ago that were no longer in print. And I just thought, you, you know, you always hear about you'll never get a publishing company or a record company to to release the master back to you, you know, uh even if you can put a price to it. No, they own it. They even if they're not putting it out, you're not gonna get it. But I that's not what happened. I went to a record label and said, Hey, you have stuff that's not out there anymore. What can I do uh to get those masters back? And we worked it out and I've re-released four or five of those things that in their day had you know, really good budgets for piano and orchestra. And now they're back out and streaming. So um, you pulled a, You pulled a Taylor Swift. I did, <laughs> sort of, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I've had bad luck or no luck at all getting things back. And then, and like I say, in this one case, they were very, very kind about it. Kind of said, you know, it's silly for it to be sitting in our warehouse, you know. Uh, But the thing I don't understand, Garrett, and I really don't know the answer to this, is that, so I've had things with these different labels, and then I'm doing things myself as well, and releasing them, and then I, you know, I did a choral album with a couple other people, and then it went up, you've got all these things getting uploaded from different sites, and you put something up there, and it has a window of about three weeks before the next thing comes along, and knocks it down one in your release schedule, and then, and then I get a call from someone, hey, well, we didn't know that was, you know, gosh, we were releasing your piano record on um, this is such a day. And two days ago, this thing appeared and uh, well, I don't, you can't control all those entities. They all end up in the very same <laughs> channel. And then you end up with this over-release uh, problem. So,
0: you know, that's kind of a Well, unique... I think you're Well, I think you're right. I think I think the challenges of recording music and self-publishing are very very comparable because you have the same question on the on the arranging side too or the publishing side, you know, how how often do I release new music? How much do I release new music? And yeah. and I I think the juries may be still out on that, but I do think there's something to be said for I don't know, there's if you if you put out too much stuff, people get oversaturated and they just can't handle it all. But if you don't put out enough, then you get lost.
1: Right. And for the most part, I have I have never stressed one way or another about it. I just write and then sometimes it gets bottled up and I've done too much. And other times there's a fallow period, you know. But then it's really weird. All of a sudden, a bunch of stuff will come out that was done at totally different times, but they just got Together and out they come and and people go. Do you ever sleep? Well, actually, yeah, I slept for a long time. It's just <laughs> I did this two all, years ago. Yeah, yeah, I've forgotten I did it at this point. You know.
0: So how do you manage all your different projects? I think I think the time management and and the project management. I think that's something a lot of people struggle with when you have multiple multiple projects for different clients. You have your own stuff. You have you know, the recorded and the sheet music, and you're trying to market it yourself and you're trying to wear all these hats. How do you personally juggle everything and keep track of everything?
1: That is the the aspect of freelancing, entrepreneurial freelancing that I've always loved. That's the thing that I enjoy having. I, I mean, I just have the the big board up on the wall and I've got a timeline with everything. And I walk in my room first thing in the morning and I look at it and see what I need to do to bring each one of those things to the next spot. And if I don't see it personally, the, the my way my mind works, if I don't see it up in an analog form on the wall where I can chart it and keep track of it, I lose control of it. Um, but that's the way I, I have functioned. And I have dropped the ball a few times, big time, where I miscalculated and suddenly found myself – in need of a ghost writer, although I've never actually—I don't personally believe in ghosts. I always co-arranger or co-whatever. I've always credited people when I've d- done that, but yeah, that's kind of how I function. So I like doing that,
0: and then I never stick to it. That's a personal failing of mine. But it always seems like there's something else that comes up. You know, you you get you get a clear set of of deadlines or I want to put this out here and this out here. And then, yeah. then you know, so-and-so comes up with a studio session that's tomorrow and you have to drop everything and do that. And and then you just get this domino effect of everything just kind of falls apart.
1: Yeah, that happens to me too. And then you regroup and, and get back on target with whatever it is. I spent the entire day yesterday recording uh, piano solos that I had intended to do a month ago. And that created a real mess for me because I have to practice. I'm not someone that walks in the room and just... So I had all this stuff really prepared. It was nine solos that were difficult things for me to keep under my fingers. Had them ready and then couldn't do the session. And so for the last month, I've been trying to keep those things under my fingers while I'm on doing other things. And I was not a pleasant person the last week. I was, my wife would tell you I was grumpy because I had had it trying to keep those things practiced and prepared to be recorded. I recorded them yesterday and I am a happy camper today because <laughs> they are done and off my plate.
0: So I've heard a lot of people talking about this idea of, you know, you sort of do things in batches, right? You know, you you write 10 songs or you record 10 songs and then And then you sort of schedule them out. So it's like you're going to do one a month and then you know you have stuff coming down the line and you kind of get a bit of a breather. Is that how you operate or do things pretty much just go out the door once you have them finished?
1: Yes, (laughs) both. Uh, But I try as much as possible. And I say try, is at the front side of a project before you're into it and expectations are set Uh, with the people that you're working with to be as clear about what's ahead as possible what is it that you want from me when are you gonna want it from me and I'm always very very raised eyebrow when someone says to me there is not a deadline for this project we just want you to be creative and it says uh -uh. (laughs) uh-uh you you have a deadline in mind you, you have an idea when you'd like to do this. You're just not telling me right now. You're not telling me what you're really thinking. And I've dig dig in on that. Oh no. What no? You have a deadline. When are you going to want the first one? Uh, because I hate that feeling to be into something. And then you get the call. So how's that coming? Yeah, we're talking about a session in two weeks. And yeah. <laughs> uh
0: so with sheet music in particular, how much have you noticed the timing making
1: a difference?
0: Does it really matter when you put these things out or is it just a question of when it's going to catch the cycle?
1: I don't think it makes that big a difference, honestly. Uh, I mean, Christmas, you know, I've been writing Christmas material in April and May for the last gazillion years and they want it done so they can have it you know, ready to come out in the fall or whatever. But what I find normally, frequently, at least with piano music, I can't say, I'm not sure that's necessarily true with choral things, but definitely with piano music, it doesn't find its home until the next season. It comes out and it ends up sitting there and gets found next year anyway. So I'm not sure that that deadline made a lot. When it comes to educational piano music, It used to be if you didn't have your book out, your thing out for, you know, MTNA, Music Teachers National Mm -hmm. Association, it was not going to, you know, it was going to be fallow for a year. But uh, that's not true anymore either. Okay, so I've always just assumed that piano
0: music does Better with digital sales than other types of music. You know, choral is still very much a print thing because no no choral director wants to go you know print and staple a hundred copies of their music. But when you have just a single piano player, I mean, does that does that match with what you're seeing?
1: What I'm seeing is that the core method books in a piano series are going to still be a print thing. They want the the book, but when you're talking about uh, an arrangement or a piece that that's in a collection let's say i do a collection of spirituals for intermediate piano i'm seeing more and more of that go where they'll go pick the arrangement they like and buy it digitally as a single um but but like i say method books still very much print oriented
0: so these piano collections do you think they sell better because they're in a group like do you think Releasing one a month would do differently than putting them out in a big batch like that. Do you think there's something about having them grouped together that makes a difference? because um, as you said, people are buying them individually. But do you think that they do you think the fact that they're part of a package
1: helps? I think it does because they're drawn to it uh, initially as oh, i I'd like to have something of this ilk and then they look at it and they pick out their favorite and you know, I I think there's even a certain amount of, you know, they go online and look at the book and kind of see the general level of it from the website and then pick out the title they like. Uh, But, you know, they're still buying books, uh, too. But I don't know what the ratio is anymore. uh, Yeah. When it comes to uh, extracurricular folios, I'm not sure.
0: Well, let's get into piano then, because I can't have you on the podcast and not pick your brain on piano. What advice would you give to somebody writing for piano for whom that is not their primary instrument, which I think is most composers or arrangers, you know, piano is one of those instruments that everyone is asked to write for at some point. Yeah.
1: It's interesting some of the very very best piano or and certainly successful piano arrangers that I can think of knowing in my career piano was not their primary instrument and as a result they approached it with trepidation and great care as to making it really playable at a global level. Um, there was a guy named Bill Boyd that wrote easy piano type level jazz pieces he was a jazz band guy he was a band he taught band in college or high school and then he started writing piano arrangements sometime later in his career and when I first started in the late 80s he was, he was kind of the guy for piano jazz. And I was so surprised when I met him and talked to him. And he's like, yeah, no, I don't really play piano. But he go to the middle of the piano and he knew how to voice things well and simply. And if he could play it, he knew that it could be taught. Uh, you know? And it was, that was fascinating to me. Sometimes piano players that have a lot of facility overestimate the average want to be amateur pianist and create things that they may be pianistic and they may be playable but they're playable at too high of a level and my best selling books always have been more to that intermediate level even you know advanced pianists will say oh i wish you would write stuff that's harder i really i want an advanced book and then you do a really advanced book and it sells one quarter of what that same title list did at an intermediate to upper intermediate level. I think advanced pianists like to buy books that they can sight read and then they add things to them. When you give them something really difficult, they look at it and go, eh, I don't want to practice that hard. <laughs> so
0: how do you determine what the difficulty level is of a piano piece. You know, I was a band kid, so I know there's grade 1, grade 2, grade 3, you know, all the way up and there's there's very specific things, you know, if you have if you have this number of key changes or even even you Five. know this this number of flats in the key signature, that puts it into this level. I mean, I what what are the things that you look at to determine the uh, the difficulty level of piano?
1: Piano has never been that graded specifically in this country. Uh, It has been more per publisher. You go and you look at Alfred's materials and you look at it and and figure out kind of how they're grading things. You go and look at the Bastion materials and get a sense about it. You look at Hal Leonard's, you look at favorite, you know, that you kind of have to look and see how they're plotting things. I got to know the Hal Leonard spectrum of that because I was part of writing that method in, in the early 90s. And it's very, very specific within the structure of that, sp- that piano method. But when I do books, my series of books that have my name on it for Hal Leonard, you know, I was working with their, they had level called Beginning Piano Solo, and then Big Note, and then Easy Piano, and then Piano Solo. And I kind of worked it out in my own mind within each of those levels, more or less Uh, But you're touching upon something, Garrett, you know, in the Royal Academy of Music and and the Australian music system, you know, there are places primarily in British flag countries that have really, really carefully graded systems. Uh, And I've never written for those markets. Um, The U.S. market is not as clearly annotated as that. But Within my own series, people know when they go to it, they know what My Easy Piano basic structures are, you know. But it's not what you mentioned, like for your band stuff. It's never been that clear in the piano market.
0: Well, I just wonder, because when you self-publish something, they always ask, you know, what's the difficulty level? And it's usually like, you know, beginner, easy, medium, hard you know, advanced, maybe an intermediate advance. And, you know, sometimes I wonder if I'm if I'm checking the wrong box, because I don't really know, it's not clearly defined. And, and, and for some people, that probably matters a lot, you know, that they're not, they're not even if they're if they're filtering by only intermediate, you know, they're only going to see those. And so, right, uh, it, you know, it's kind of it feels like a shot in the dark, almost with some of this. stuff. It
1: is even for the publisher, we will go back and forth. When I send in a book, they I'd send it in and say it was lower intermediate, and then my editor would come back and say, well, no, we're going to call it intermediate. Say, oh, okay, based on what? Well, just kind of think, you know. And, and and the other thing about it is people judge, in my opinion, quite often, judge the thing that makes a piano piece. They judge the wrong things into, into what makes it difficult. You know, you can have scale patterns going all over the place that look difficult. They're actually easy. And something that is more harmonically complex may not be technically difficult, but it's harmonically sophisticated. And you've taken something from what maybe you could say, oh, that's an early elementary or late elementary or early intermediate piece technically. And I would say it's an advanced piece. You give this to a, a younger student, they will never play this well. And it should not be something that's given to them uh, at that level with the expectation they can be it's an advanced piece so
0: you're saying look at the technical difficulty but also just the compositional difficulty of it
1: yes you know something that has uh, colorful harmonies in it that are not that someone with not a lot of experience will think they're playing wrong notes you know Mm. and uh, and you'd be gosh you should see I get emails sometimes that disfloor me, you know? A piano teacher that is very much a classically oriented person who has mostly younger students and their whole world is very diatonic. And they buy something of yours that has some jazz colorings in it because they know my work from pedagogical material. And they'll send me notes. Is measure eight, you know, you have an A in the left hand and there's a G in the right hand, you know? Uh, is, which one is correct? Oh, well,
2: (laughs) they're both correct. (laughs) Uh,
0: All right. Well, this, this may be an obvious question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Um, How is writing accompaniment parts different than writing solo
1: piano parts? The teacher accompaniment, so to speak, are are you talking about with, for a, a piano piece that has a an accompaniment for the student to play with is that what you're talking about or you're talking about for a, so- a singer or something
0: well yeah let us let, say let's say you're writing let's say you're writing like a, a piano part to go with a choir arrangement the piano is not the focus do I, you write do you write that differently than if it was a piano solo i mean obviously whether or not there's a melody you know putting that aside like sure. right. do you approach it do you approach it differently or is that one of those questions that can't be answered because it depends you on know. the
1: piece I write as, as clear and not as. I'll tell you this, Garrett. When I write piano parts, I almost always simplify. beyond, I write and then I simplify and then I simplify again. Uh, because a choir a accompanist wants to successfully undergird that choir, but they don't want they don't practice enough. And I also bring them in range wise. I'm pretty careful not to go too extreme in either direction. That's where you end up with people hitting wrong notes. So if you can keep them within a fairly tight geography in the center of the keyboard, I will say that when I'm writing for a, a say a choral accompaniment, I'm, I, I don't fuss around nearly as much with finger numbers and, and that kind of thing. Mm. But because of that, I think I end up writing a little simpler because I don't want them having to work out some intricate. uh, One thing I do have learned to do over the years is make sure that that piano accompaniment, when it's choral or a solo singer, either one, is handing pitches to people in the choir at key spots. So writing the accompaniment and then going back and looking carefully. Okay, if I'm the tenor singing along with this piano accompaniment, and I find it hard to hit such and such a note, I'd sure like to see that get interpolated into that piano part as much as possible.
2: Yeah.
0: Well, and I also wonder, I've seen a lot of instrumental arrangements where the solo part may be pretty easy and then the piano part's actually a lot harder. It, it's it's
1: true. I mean, can we say Hindemith? Ex- you know, that's exactly who I was thinking of. The Hindemith Trombone Concerto is just a beast. All of those sonatas are... Horrible for the piano. And I played (laughs) the And I got to be a pretty good Hindemith faker. It's like, find the rhythm and keep moving because, you know, you can at least keep the soloist uh, from falling apart. Yes, those parts are hard. I mean, I,
0: I guess what I'm getting at is, is how much do you think the difficulty level of the accompaniment factors into whether or not someone buys a piece? Because a lot of times I think they're focused on whatever the solo part is or the choral parts and 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 maybe don't look as closely at that side of things. Or maybe it's a selling point, you know, maybe it's like you want your student to feel great and so their parts easy, but then this piano is just going off. And and, right. and is there and is there a way to classify that, you know, because when you when you are publishing, you know, let's, I don't know, let's say it's a Lizzo arrangement, you know, flute and piano, right? The the public the publisher is going to ask, you know, what's the difficulty level? And if if one's an easy and the other one's advanced, how do you write yeah, right. that to the purchaser?
1: Right. Yeah. So I think the piano part is is generally uh um easier than harder. Um, you know, I will say this. You know what's interesting to me on, on that subject is you know, I played some of your piano parts recently for you and recorded them for for your sessions. And you tell me you're not a piano player, but your piano parts, uh, even though sometimes you notated them in a way that is not my what wouldn't have been my first choice as a piano player to see them. Your logic of what how they're to be played and they're so logical that it was understood. I knew your intent. So they're very playable. And I say the same thing. Do you know Robert Sterling's work at all yeah. oral, yeah, go for years for for word. He doesn't play piano at all, but his piano parts are completely logical. And again, sometimes I look at it and go,, mm, I think this is what he what he means, what he's it's not notated how maybe I would have typically seen it for piano, but so logical that, and playable.
0: Um, well, my, my rule of thumb is if I can sort of halfway fake it, then someone who actually knows what they're doing will be fine.
1: I think that's a great <laughs> rule. And that's the same rule I used for myself on so-called, when I have a book that says so-called advanced, what that means to me is that I can sit down and without practicing it, sell it at the piano then that means somebody that thinks they want an advanced arrangement is going to be able to learn it. And a, you know, a professional pianist will be able to make use of it quickly. And that's advanced. Anything beyond that in the arranging world, you're kidding yourself. It just will never be played well.
0: Yeah. So, I suspect there are some people listening to this that either have created or want to create their own educational methods, either for their own piano studio or for some other um, you know, just just for mark just, just because they enjoy writing educational music. What advice would you have on how to do that, to create a series of music that'll take a student from point A to point D or wherever you're going, Z, I guess is the end of the alphabet.
1: The best educational piano music is is written by someone that, that is teaching. And if they're not teaching, they need to be very closely allied with someone who is. Because the last word in whether a piece is going to work for a student is the student. And uh, I've always relied on teachers and students you know, I run it through that that filter when it's going to be an educational release. I was fortunate when we were writing the Hal Leonard piano method. My kids were student level; they were ages. They started playing that stuff when they were like six and four, and so I was able to hear them, you know, practice that stuff, and I You're learned guinea pigs. They were guinea pigs, and that was really helpful. And and what's interesting then we all that stuff, I guess to to be more specific to your question, is make sure that you have either taught the piece yourself or had someone teach it before you claim to be putting out a piano method.
0: yeah, so getting a little bit into church music, I think that's one area where self-published music is doing quite well. Mm-hmm. Um, do you approach that differently when you're writing church music? I mean, I assume, Obviously, the marketing is different because you're targeting a more specific group of people. But do you write it differently or is is it the same musically? It just happens to be material that a certain group is going to find more appealing.
1: Yeah, I, I guess I sort of have my, my approach to music in general and I apply it to the church market. But at this stage of my life, I am writing very little music that's being published in the choral church market. That's really just been post-COVID. That's just Mm. the way it's happened for me. And yet I've done, I'm probably doing five or six commissions a year. Uh, So I kind of always have a choral commission going here, writing for someone. So in those instances, I find I'm writing different than I used to write for a generic publishing week, because I'm sort of, all right, tell me about your choir.
0: Yeah,
1: How's it going to be used? And I'm being a little more, I guess I'm, to some extent, I'm I'm finding that to be fun, to be a little outside of the box because I know what how it's going to be used specifically. Now, what I've not tried yet, I have not taken any of my commissions and put them on my site
2: hmm.
1: as things. I and I do do you do that? Do you do you sell your commission works on your site? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, see,
2: I've not
0: done that yet. Yeah, I mean, typically. There's, you know, some sort of agreement. They get the first performance or they get it for X number of months and then it's fair game, you know? I've just
1: never, I've never, and I, you know, that's a project in itself. <laughs> Going back through my stuff and getting that commissions up on my side. I haven't, I haven't done that yet. I, I probably know the answer to this, but, um,
0: I think choral is self explanatory when it comes to the church market because churches have choirs or a lot of them do. Do you think there's a, What's the what's the market for piano music in church like, would you say? Or in or instrumental music maybe.
1: What I find surprising and it has always surprised me is there seems to be an unlimited market for traditional hymn piano solos. I just don't understand after I mean as long as I've been writing, dozens of those th- collections come out every year and uh, and they they always, you know, for any writer, they they're they sell and they sell, continue to sell. So and I'm guessing that's just because that's the most cross-denominational title, you know mm-hmm. that something like uh, Rock of Ages can be played anywhere. And, and maybe that's maybe that's why. I don't know what's interesting to me, you know, living here in Nashville, about every other church you go to, you know, it, it has a praise band and there's nobody playing piano solos. So I don't know where they're getting played. Not <laughs> Nashville, I'll tell you that. <laughs> All right. Well, so this, this is a
0: question I always ask the arrangers. Does it matter to you whether or not you're known as an arranger or a composer? Do you think that makes a difference?
1: Huh. Well, it does make a difference. It's funny, in the educational market, they would call me a composer. In the folio market, I would be seen as an arranger. And that's just because people that are teaching those books, see I've composed many of those pieces. But I think that delineation tends to be a little more precious to those of us that do it. You know, the general public thinks of you as someone who writes music, but, you know... Uh did I answer that question? <laughs> don't know that I did. <laughs> it does
0: matter. Well, I mean, cause because you said before, you know, the, the thing about the boxes, you know, getting put in the box. Right. And I and right. I wonder if I wonder if that's a box that's hard to get out of. If you get known as an arranger and then you try to write an original piece, you know, does that does that present
1: any obstacles? Yeah. I I think it does. Um and I don't know how those played out for me over the years. I'm I'm not really sure I did. I did more arranging than I did composing. Uh, and yet I have a lot of things in, in, you know, in the, you know, you take that even further, I've written dozens and dozens and dozens of songs that have been recorded for various things, but people don't think of me as a songwriter. And yeah. they wouldn't say, they went, Oh, he's a songwriter. No. Cause I don't go to, I don't go to uh, guitar polls and I don't hang out in that songwriting world but I've written a lot of songs. Uh so yeah that that that's interesting. I mean in, in your own case have you have you done specific like you make a business card does it say composer ranger you know or does it say well, arranger
0: Well first of all no one takes business cards anymore so I haven't but ah, <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean you you kind of try but on like on the websites and the bios and that right. sort of thing, you, you kind of right. have to cover all your bases because you don't want somebody to think that you're not, you know. If you yeah, don't yeah. list if you don't list composer, you know, then right. maybe they won't ask you to compose something, you know. So you kind of have right. to kind of you know, within the industry, no one cares. But I think when you're looking at presenting yourself to a client, you know, you kind of have right. to say these, these are the list of services you know composer arranger orchestra well, you know what's composer. funny
1: yeah is I've always my mm-hmm. it always has said composer arranger pianist for whatever reason that's what ends up on a lot of my things and yet I spend at least a third of my life orchestrating <laughs> and I I didn't arrange it compose it or any of it I'm just orchestrating it you know uh and, and what's even more interesting to me is how the title of orchestrator, is different depending on what town you're working in. Yeah. You know, in, in the Christian music business, say, we want you to orchestrate this. What they're saying is, I'm going to send you a piano file and you're going to build an orchestra around it. You're arranging it. Yeah. The piano is just setting out the chord progression and there's a vocal all been recorded, but you are arranging and orchestrating. But if you're John Williams' orchestrator, you're essentially a copyist. So it's, it's fascinating how those titles or yeah
0: well we didn't really talk at all about how you got into doing this and how you got into the the freelance publishing life but um maybe we can just end with um if you were starting out now if you were somebody you know fresh out of college and wanting to be uh selling sheet music how would you get into it what would you try what would you do
1: Uh, i would definitely be taking it as a Freelance entrepreneur with a website and a good Facebook and Instagram, uh, social media presence, and writing for anybody that would ask me to write, taking commissions, and holding on to my creations is the way I would approach it. Because uh, any of the big labels or publishers that might be listening to this... um, That that paradigm is, is changing and changing really quickly. And probably what happens then is you're, as a young person, doing the approach that I'm talking about, you're going to get hired to do things for these other folks based on the work that you're doing for yourself. But moving forward, that's going to be the much bigger field to plow, I'm sure. You're doing well, the right approach, Garrett.
0: Oh, <laughs> well, thank you. Sucking up will take you far. <laughs> Anything you want to promote before we go? and what's, what's your latest project?:
1: I just released to the s- streaming services a thing called hymn Celebration, that I'm really, very proud of that I actually created for a label that went out of business, and I have then gotten a hold of the masters and re-released it myself. And it is eight, 10-minute-long symphonic suites for choir and orchestra. So it's a lot of music. It's 88 times, whatever that is, 80 minutes of music. And uh, it was something I worked so hard on and it's meant to be something that could be performed by a symphony and a choir, but it also has congregational things built into it. And yeah, that's something that I feel fortunate to have been asked to write it and I'm glad that it's out there now. Awesome, and where can people find you? philipkevern.com.
0: Beautiful. Well, thanks so much. This was a lot of fun. And uh, we'll, we'll have you on again sometime.
1: Thank you, Garrett.
0: My thanks again to Philip for coming on the podcast. Here's two of his recent works. First up is Piano Dreaming. And finally, Hymns of Praise and Worship by Philip Kevron.
2: His children in his arms, he carries them all day long. Oh, praise him, praise him! Tell of his excellent greatness, praise him.
0: For listening to another episode of Selling Sheet Music. If you like the show, please leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can email Garrett at Breezetunes.com to get in touch with me, and you can find my music at GarrettBreeze.com. Selling Sheet Music is written, produced, and hosted by me, Garrett Breeze. Post production for this episode was done by Jacob Molaski and our theme music was written by myself and David Dykstra. I'll see you next week. Now go write something.